Sarah. Hi, Allison. So, um, did you have your morning coffee on a cafe terrace today? I did, <laughs> at last.、Uh, but I chose a cafe that wasn't too busy because some terraces were absolutely packed. Right, because this is the first time, right? The、mm. cafe terraces are open in what, like six months? Yeah, yeah. Cafe terraces, restaurant terraces reopened yesterday, Wednesday, as part of this first phase of easing of the of COVID restrictions. Yeah, yeah. In my neighborhood, there were people out all day, despite the rain.、Mm. Um, even first thing yesterday morning, 8:30 a.m., I saw people queuing up at the movie theaters,、What? really desperate <laughs> there to go. <laughs> I have to admit, I haven't gone to get a coffee yet. I haven't sat at a terrace yet. Maybe I'll wait for the crowds to thin out. <laughs> also, you didn't get to post the photo of yourself on the terrace having a、no. coffee. Yeah, that was、no. that was the thing to do on social media yesterday. No, no terrace selfie for me. Although it was nice to see everybody so happily doing. It, but President Macron and the Prime Minister—they did nail that one.、Mm. They were some of the first to be out there, photographed on a cafe terrace around the corner from the Elysee Palace. Yeah, it was important for them to show support, wasn't it, for small businesses? They're so desperate、mm-hmm. for custom after this six-month break,、uh, but also they were keen to prove that France is opening up and that their step-by-step strategy is indeed working. Step by step, although it really does feel like there's just the floodgates open.、Um, meanwhile, at my local cafe up here in northern Paris,、um, as they were preparing things last week, they're telling me they're actually having trouble recruiting waiters.、Hmm. They're really surprised they put up a sign and not that many people responded.、Um, maybe it's because people are off doing other things, or maybe they're holding off on these lower-paid jobs with uneven hours. You yeah, know, who knows? Also, if they'll shut her up again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> We should follow up on that.、Uh, mm. See if it's. Actually, the same story outside of the capital. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So everybody's super happy, taking pictures, drinking their coffee. Of course, in Paris, that got a little dampened because it really poured down all of yesterday afternoon. Well, at least Parisians can take advantage of all these cultural venues that are opening up again,、uh, albeit with reduced capacity, of course.、Uh, so the museums, the theaters, and of course the cinemas. Yeah, yeah. And talking about social media, there were several people who posted photos of themselves at museums. I felt like it was kind of a status symbol, saying, you know, they were there on the first day, their first ones back at the museum. Yeah, been there, done it. Yeah. yeah. And as for the movies, well, there are some four hundred films waiting to be shown. Whoa, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that's <laughs> one, a- one, one a day for a full year. <laughs> exactly, or maybe ten a day for forty days for the real,、yeah. real、uh, cinema mad people. So loads of choice,、um, and the chance to shelter from the rain in front of the silver screen could be a lot worse. أفراح الحلوة تفرحنا لو بتزال So, a, a taste of Sudan there.、Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron held a special summit this week in Paris to welcome Sudan back into the international system. Yeah, the country has only recently been taken off the U.S. blacklist for state sponsors of terrorism after Omar al Bashir was toppled from power in 2019.、Uh, Macron said this week that Sudan is an inspiration in its democratic transition after 30 years of authoritarian rule under Bashir.、Hmm. France has pledged 1.2 billion euros to help Sudan to pay off some of its nearly 50 billion euro foreign debt, but、mm. Sudan is also hoping to attract investments, not just donations, which of course had previously been unattainable because of the blacklist.
Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of unused and arable land in Sudan, but also the country is looking to tourism. There's a lot of history there. Turns out it's not just Egypt that has pyramids, so does Sudan. There are about 200 of them in and around the ancient city of Meroe, which is the capital of the Kush Kingdom, which is on the banks of the Nile, lasted for about 800 mm -hmm. years from 590 BC to the 4th century AD. Um, along with ancient Egypt, the Kush Kingdom was one of the earliest and most developed states on the African continent. So, Sarah, Sudan, it's not a Francophone country. Mm -mm. Uh, so, so what's the French connection? Yeah, why are we talking about it on Spotlight on France? Well, many of these pyramids are in ruins. Um, a lot of artifacts are to be unearthed, and it keeps archaeologists busy. Turns out France is involved in helping to preserve it all. Um, our colleague, Laura Angela Bagnetto, recently spent a couple of weeks in Sudan. She met Marc Maillot, who's a French archaeologist who works with the French section of the Sudanese Antiquities Division. It celebrated its 50 years of partnership with Sudan in 2019, so they've been around for a while. Laurangela told me that Maillot has a deep passion for the history of the region. He did a PhD at the Sorbonne with a focus on ancient city planning and architecture in the Nile Valley from Egypt to Sudan. He's really passionate about it. He speaks Arabic. Uh, right. So he has like the personal interest. And then for this kind of thing, I guess Sudan is the place to be. Exactly. And he now is the director of the French archaeological unit in Sudan. It works with the uh, French embassy in Khartoum and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. His current dig, which he just finished, is mm -hmm. in partnership with the Louvre uh, Museum in Paris. It's great that he was able to go out in the sand and dig up stuff with his team because most archaeologists were uh, thwarted because of COVID. They could not come to Sudan because of restrictions. But um, Mayo lives and works in Sudan, so he was already there. So he was one of the few who were able to do his uh, dig. Huh, like yet another industry affected by COVID. That's interesting. Um, he just finished a dig. Where, where was it and what was he looking for? So it's called Dumboya, and it's 270 kilometers north of Khartoum, near the town of Shendi. So it's part of the Medawe Kingdom, which is like along the two Niles. It was an urban site, and it was occupied in the first century AD. He said he found a governor's house and a complex that they've never seen before. It's a, a red brick temple surrounded by an enclosure and then on the rear part there is a huge uh, annex let's say uh, a storage and administrative complex so we have several elements that are connected to the standard meritic architecture but on the other side you have some kind of what we call apex meaning plans that you cannot find elsewhere there is no other comparative uh, in sudan and outside sudan so one of the main objectives of the upcoming seasons would be to understand and better the function of this plan. He says that this kind of site helps to understand how people lived way back when. It could seem that we are only focusing on bricks or ceramic or whatever, but the whole idea of all of this is to understand how common people were living at a certain period and how a state, which is the most ancient political structure in sub-Saharan Africa, was functioning. And of course, without a huge amount of text, contrary to Egypt, Archaeology is actually the main priority here because it is one of the best sources of data that we can hope for. He's supported by France to do all this work, um, supported by the embassy in Khartoum, among others. What is France's interest in supporting this work in Sudan? 
Well, I mean, there's a soft power thing going on. There's cooperation with Sudan and promoting patrimony and heritage. And also to protect the archaeological site and to help the Sudanese government to exploit them because they really want to use patrimony as, let's say, a cultural link. So uh, basically we are trying to help building a common memory. Of course, with the idea of uh, economic growth through tourism, uh, which is one of the main objectives of the Ministry of Culture regarding patrimony. But um, to be honest, the Sudanese are very interested in their own history. From little children to, you know, old people, they are interested in the Black Pharaohs, Medway. So he's raising awareness or he's, you know, showing people stuff, but they already know stuff. He's just giving them more information that, that he's finding uh, with his group. So he's there to support Sudanese patrimony, but imagine he's not completely free, right, of having to contribute to spreading French culture, no? No, actually, they are spreading the French language as well. We are training uh, inspectors of the Sudan Antiquity Service to the French language, but also to the last updated techniques in archaeology, like topography or ceramology or whatever. And the idea is to create small workshops and schools into the museum, but also in universities, to train students. You said that the Louvre is also backing this dig. What's in it for them? Well, yeah, they're, they're hoping to do an exhibition on the Naptan period in Sudan. So, of course, there are standard negotiations to actually export the objects for a short time period, usually six months to one year. And uh, Sudan allows this export on the condition that the objects are restored. And then, of course, all the artifacts are brought back to Sudan after the exhibition is done. So Sudan, of course, is a tumultuous place, like a history of internal conflicts. Um, currently, there were two years into a new democratic regime, though it's been a bit rocky. Um, there's also natural issues like drought, that kind of things. How does all this affect archaeology in Sudan? Well, there's three main threats. One is natural. It's linked to climate change. There's the regular flooding of, of the Nile. And of course, the Medway Kingdom is on like right next to the Nile. And then there's other things like stealing, looting the gold um, coming out of the pyramids, because this is where kings and queens were buried. So of course, they were buried with a lot of their lovely loot. Usually those gold miners, they are just uh, coping with the economic problems of the country and they need to do that to survive. So we understand that perfectly. But the thing is that they are looting archaeological sites. And then you have agricultural expansion. So crops are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they are eating up archaeological sites. And all of these are connected to the economic problems of the country. So, uh, of course, the liberalization of the money and uh, the new measures that Sudan government took recently, I hope and I think will definitely help. But the fruits of those cooperations will not appear until a few years because it takes time. Uh, the thing is the emergencies right now. A lot of issues there, but he's sticking around. Yeah, but, um, you know, they're only in the field four to six weeks a year because it's expensive, it's hot. Um, and then the rest of the year, they're trying to, like, write articles and do the research and promote their stuff in an office. So it's not like Indiana Jones, you know what I mean? It's a lot of administrative stuff as well. <laughs> 
Not like Indiana Jones, <laughs> indeed. Not like Indiana Jones. If you want to see what these archaeological sites do look like, Laura Angela produced a really great video about the pyramids in Sudan. It's up on our Instagram page. Go check it out. Spotlight on France. And also, it's worth knowing that Laura Angela is the host of a podcast called Africa Calling uh, from RFI. It's got stories from correspondents from across the continent. If you're interested in Africa, it really is one to listen to. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Alison, you recognize that sound? I most <laughs> certainly do, Sarah. And it's living proof that I have fully integrated into French society. It's Sophie the giraffe. Good ears, good ears. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. This is the rubber toy that just about every baby in France chews on uh, during the first year of its life. So yeah, this one that I'm squeaking here is the uh, Sophie that my first kid chewed on and my second is currently chewing on as a teething kind of thing. Several generations of kids have done the same because Sophie's been around for 60 years. She was born, as it were, on May 25th, 1961. So to, let's give our listeners a sense of the animal, what she looks like. So she, she's made of cream-coloured rubber mm -hmm. and she has little brown spots and, and lovely rosy cheeks. And of course, she squeaks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. She was created by a certain Monsieur Rampot. Nobody knows his first name. It's been lost to history. He was a rotational molding specialist at the Delacoste Rubber Factory in Anières, which is north of Paris. And they specialized in rubber toys. At the time, in the 1950s, there were a lot of toys out on the market, mostly teddy bears, or they were based on like farm animals. Mm. And Rampot was looking to make something more exotic, hence the giraffe. Yeah, you don't get much more exotic than that <laughs> here in France. Uh, yeah. So he apparently made a first model called Zoe in 1959, but she was 46 centimetres mm. tall. So uh, that was a bit too big for most babies. So he made a smaller one and it came out of the mould on May the 25th, 1961, St. Sophie's Day. And so uh, a star was born. Yeah, it became an immediate success and it's continued. 60 million Sophies have been sold in the last 60 years. And in 1981, the Vuilly company bought out De La Coste. In 1992, they moved the production of the toys to Rumilly, which is a 15,000-person town in the Alps. The toys are still made there. And Sophie is the company's star product. Vuilly doesn't really give out specific numbers, but there are reportedly as many Sophies sold in France as there are births each year. So even though birth rates are going down slightly, that's still an awful lot of Sophies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's had success abroad. Sophie is sold in 85 countries. The company says that about 50% of sales are international, and the United States is the biggest market outside of France. In the U.S., Sophie has become kind of a status symbol. Um, mm. I read an article that dubbed it a status teether, as it were. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, how on earth did she make it over the Atlantic to the U.S.? Well, it got imported right in the early 2000s. A French woman actually living in California, her name's Hélène Dumoulin Montgomery, mm. sort of famous in Sophie world, uh, decided to try to import the toy. She shopped it around to different toy stores, and at first no one wanted it. Um, it was kind of expensive and still is at about $25. I mean, they were considering it a bit too expensive for a rubber chew toy. Mm. But there was a shop in Beverly Hills, um, famous part of Los Angeles, that saw the potential, and the owner started putting Sophie into expensive baby baskets for celebrities and she caught on and as soon as a celebrity baby was shown with one in a photo or a blog post sales spiked 
Of course, the celebrity mm -hmm. factor again. Yep, yep. <laughs> And then sales were boosted in 2007. Remember, hundreds of toys were recalled made in China because mm. they had lead-based paint. And so parents, of course, were worried. They were looking for alternatives. And this all-natural, organic, French-made rubber teething toy kind of made sense. And of course, had a certain cachet. Yeah. And I'm guessing her retro look um, sort of appeals to a certain hipster crowd. Yeah, for sure. And and Sophie actually hasn't changed in 60 years. She still is the same size, 18 centimeters, weighs 72 grams, still has the same squeak. Mm. <laughs> in French, they call it the pouette. <laughs> pouette, pouette. Pouette, pouette. Uh, yeah, let's hear it again. <laughs> there you go. Here we go. Pouette, pouette. Um, <laughs> production is still quasi-artisanal with reportedly... 14 different manual operations using a plaster rotational mold. So even though it is a factory, there's still a lot of hands-on work. So really, so nothing's been changed whatsoever at, uh, over these years? Well, apparently there was one tiny change just a couple years after she was born. Her right leg was bent just a tiny bit. Who oh. knows why? So what's interesting is the fact that now for the 60th anniversary, the company's coming up with five new patterns for Sophie. Might freak out some of the purists. <laughs> Cinq continents, des océans pour faire son terrain de jeu. Il a parfois été grand, parfois très courageux. Pour s'adapter, il a construit, il s'est montré inventif. Pour développer, il a produit sans être très attentif. Cinq continents, des océans pour fortifier son empire. Parfois, il a tout fait foirer et parfois, il a fait pire. En quête permanente d'évolution, il s'est créé des dilemmes. A cherché trop de solutions et il s'est trouvé des problèmes. Pourtant, il a marché sur la lune. Pourtant, so, Sarah, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you give mm -hmm. to charity? Ah, um, not regularly, to be honest. But um, every year, there are a couple causes that do catch my interest. Um, I have to admit, though, it's hard to figure out what to support. It's kind of overwhelming. There's so much out there. Yeah, so many really worthy causes. Mm. I, I give to a couple of medical charities on a regular basis. So mm -hmm. we're both, in a way, part of the 5 million households in France that do make donations. But we, or they, uh, don't get a lot of attention. The French media tends to focus on the big philanthropy the rich magnets, in, especially in luxury goods groups like LVMH, uh, L'Oréal, Kering, mm. they were really in the spotlight at the time of the Notre Dame fire just two years ago. Suddenly they were making pledges of a, a hundred or even 200 million euros in the case of LVMH. Yeah, and they, they raised close to 900 million in total mm. for the reconstruction. Some Americans chipped in too, I remember. Yeah, um, they became some of the big uh, foreign donors. Some people said at the time, great, but how come it's so easy to sign checks when it's a cathedral on fire, but not when people are going hungry? Or, mm. or how come there's so much money floating around? Yeah, in France, people aren't really used to money being flashed around and big donations are seen like that. Um, there's also kind of a more general expectation, right, that the state should cover a lot of these needs mm. that we shouldn't need individuals or, or corporations to pick up the slack. Yeah. So the French model uh, is that the state uh, redistributes wealth. But mm -hmm. the culture is changing a bit, Sarah. The government is looking to the private sector more and more to step in, and the very wealthy are no longer quite so inhibited. So the philanthropy culture is growing. Some French people think big philanthropy with people like Bill Gates and Mackenzie Scott very publicly giving away vast portions of their fortunes is a model worth following. Others are against. I sat down with Anne Mounier, 
She's a specialist in philanthropy at Essex Business School to talk about this evolution. And already it seems that French donors don't give to the same causes as Americans. In the U.S., there is a lot of major donors and big philanthropy to their institutions. So elite give to their universities, uh, they give to their schools, to their church. While in France, they mostly give to other causes, for example, child protection, uh, medical research, and also poverty. And companies also give a lot to culture, but it's not the main cause. It appears a lot in the media, so that's why people think it's the main cause. Tell us a bit about how it's developing in France. Is it really taking off? Yeah, it's been developing since the 60s. So we had the creation of the Fondation France in 1969 and then the Admical, which promotes corporate philanthropy in 1979. And then we have a big law in uh, 2003 that offered tax deductions. But I think it was really developing since the 80s and it's really booming now. What's changed in the cult which means that it's taking off now? So I think the 2003 law was very important. Individuals and companies get a tax deduction. It's 66% for individuals and 60% for companies. So it's easier to make donations with this tax deduction. But also the context changed. There was a lot of liberalization and privatizations and also a change of culture. Maybe the relationship to money has changed very... What do you mean by that? Historically, it's very hard to talk about money in France because we consider it's very tacky to, to talk about mm-hmm. money. <laughs> But I think it's changing. And so the U.S. appear to be a, a model for France in many ways. So people are more willing to say, yes, I have Uh, two million euros and I'm quite happy to give it to this or that foundation. Yes, exactly. And I, th- I think also the state budget being cut is also an important aspect. So institutions need money. So every organization in France now is, is raising funds, uh, schools, universities, hospitals. So I think it's a very important phenomenon. But there are some sticking points on this. It's not like everyone's embracing philanthropy in France today. Yes, there is still a criticism and resistance. I think one aspect is tax deduction. So when one big donor gives money, for example, to Notre Dame, the tax deduction is the people's money. So I think people do not agree with that. So in a way, some people were thinking, actually, at the end of the day, it's not an act of generosity. I think the backlash that happened with Notre Dame was mostly about the context. It was at a time when there was the Gilets Jaunes movement. The Yellow Vest. They were really taking the government to task over the issues of equality, poverty divide, uh, the cost of living. Exactly, at that moment. And also because it was at a moment that is still today where there is a huge gap between elites and the people in France and a lot of poverty and economic crisis. So People saw a lot of money coming for Notre Dame and while there were people homeless and unemployed. So they were thinking, is this right to do this? And is that attitude prevailing still? In some parts of the population, I think the problem in France is that it's very polarized. So you have some people who are really against philanthropy and who think it's just some rich people giving money to get a good reputation and a good image, while others are in favor. And I think we shouldn't think 
about philanthropy as a dichotomy because there are also good aspects, uh, for example, flexibility, but also innovation. Here's the money, let's do it. Whereas going through the layers of government administration to get a grant if you're wanting to do you know, some good works can be really slow. Yes, exactly. And there is a, a huge bureaucracy in France. <laughs> and also you can commit to long-term projects while uh, politicians have to do public policies in four years. But I think one of the key aspects is the power. And I think the power relationship is very problematic because when a, a big donor gives money, he gets power. And I think maybe talking and trying to solve this power relationship would be a good idea to make uh, philanthropy more acceptable to the French people. When we talk about philanthropy, Anne, of course we tend to think of the billionaires because it's all very flashy, isn't it, giving millions and millions. But is your average French person also quite generous? Yes, and I think it's one of the problems of how philanthropy appears in the media. They only talk about big donors, while philanthropy is way more complex and diverse. And there are a lot of little donors, there is crowdfunding, and these donors are also very important. And we have to think also about volunteering. There are so many volunteers in France, and this is also philanthropy. Are there also causes to which they don't want to give, where they think it's really the job of the state? We still think that some causes are important and that the state should be in charge. For example, education, health, uh, the arts. The arts still should be state-funded. Many people think that, also because this is part of the Republican contract in France where the public interest uh, should be shared by everyone and the state should be in charge. So the state still very much has a role to play. I think people want the state to have this role um, because they're afraid that privatization will maybe lower the expectations and also bring a lot of competition between uh, institutions. But as you know, the state has less and less money. And I think with the COVID crisis, it's even worse. So let's see what the next years bring. It's interesting there how the economic situation is pushing more towards philanthropy. Um, for me, that was something that struck me when I first came to live in France was how much people here expected the state to cover. Whereas in the U.S., you know, it's kind of everyone for themselves and you end up raising money for everything. Yeah, the famous giving back to the community mm -hmm. idea. And because they're solicited, Americans are used to giving and they're yeah. increasingly giving to France, especially in the cultural domain. As we mentioned before, they made up the largest number of foreign donors to Notre Dame after the fire. And in fact, they have a long history of supporting French culture. And Mounier has written a book about this, Nos Amis les Américains, Our American Friends. And so she lifted the lid a bit on some of the reasons why U.S. philanthropists are so keen to give to France. There is a tradition of American philanthropy towards France uh, during and after the World Wars, but even now um, with the American Friends groups, it's a huge phenomenon and it's part of French-American relationships. Are they expecting things in return? I mean, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in the case of Notre Dame, for example, you know, if, they, if the American donors give loads of money, 
What do they want back from that? So, so Bourdieu said that philanthropy is an exchange between economic Pierre capital. Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu is a rather left-leaning sociologist. Uh, sociologist. Yes. Uh, he said that philanthropy is uh, an exchange between economic capital and symbolic capital. So you give money and you get recognition. So I think people who give to culture, they look for recognition for symbolic capital, but I think also for power, which is hard to get in France. I mean, in France, when you give money, you don't get that much power because uh, institutions are very independent, but it's changing now. People are trying to satisfy donors, but also trying to draw red lines for donors to not be too important in the institutions. Contrary to what we might imagine, in France, being a philanthropist, even a big one, doesn't necessarily get you a place at the top table. You can have some power, but there are limits. For example, one aspect that was interesting was the naming. For example, in France, it's not very common to name uh, buildings after the donor or uh, rooms after the donors, but it's coming. I've noticed in the Louvre, you've got some rooms that have now been named after a big yes. donor. Exactly. It's changing. But then in terms of programmation, or they can't say, okay, I give you millions and you do this opera or this exhibition, but still they can say the words and maybe ask. And another thing that is very interesting and very specific to France is that when you give money, for example, for a French institution, a lot of money, you can get a decoration, for example, the Légion d'honneur. The, the Legion of Honor, the ultimate uh, French recognition. I met some people who wanted to give to a French institution just to get the decoration. It's a very important incentive for Americans because they don't have Légion d'honneur in the U.S., and for example, when you give a lot of money to French institutions, you get a lot of prestige. For example, you can get invited to a dinner at the Élysée Palace or at the uh, Assemblée Nationale. So I think we have a lot of symbolic capital to offer to Americans, and that's very attractive for them. So I guess I'd better start saving up for my Légion d'honneur. <laughs> Yeah, take heart, because for a smaller amount, uh, you can get a donation medal from the culture ministry. Ah, wow. Yeah, like a, like a gold star in school. Great. Um, though, I mean, I guess if that's what gets people to donate, why not? So that's it for the show this week. If you've got any questions about what you've heard, do send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This show was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, June 3rd. Until then, bye. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah.